Today is Monday, July 10th, 2017. Time for episode number 12 of the Barnhart Podcast. Now that the fireworks in the United States of America are done for now, we can look forward to them starting soon in the United States of Europe. But first, the Diabolical Narcissism DVD is shipping. The PayPal order button is now on Anne's website. The proper website should be available soon, though I don't know if that's an Italian soon or American soon. Uh, that's a reference to Tea with Mussolini if you haven't seen that movie before. It's not necessarily recommended, but uh, hope, hopefully I'll get that website done soon. And, and also on, on the website, there's an email if you are outside of the United States. Uh, there's an email address to email if you want to have a copy of the DVD shipped to you. We have had one international shipment so far, so that can be done, even though it says right now just U.S. shipping. Uh, we could probably do an entire show just on Tolja's, but last week we discussed that President Trump and Kayfabe have been touching on his involvement with the WWE wrestling thing. I failed to notice until after the show, he's actually a WWE Hall of Famer. Um, should we be terribly surprised by that? He's he's an important he's an important man with uh, enormous gravitas, and you know, being in the Hall of Fame of the World Wrestling Federation that's uh, it's pretty important. I I don't know how you miss that, super nerd. Yeah, I, I did look at part of his uh, acceptance speech, and yes, he delivered that with a lot of. Actually, no, I, I was going to make a make a joke about it sounding so you know gravitas and and, and serious, but honestly, I, when I looked at his WWE uh, acceptance speech of, of joining the Hall of Fame, it sounded exactly like one of his campaign speeches, and it hit me all of a sudden. It's like he's been putting on an act the whole time, and we've been saying this, but it it just became really obvious looking at this. He hasn't been serious about anything from day one. It's all about brand Trump, and um, nothing nothing makes the brand. All the more interesting than, hey, former president after the name. Well, this is this is kind of my thesis from the beginning. Um, a lot of people, I did receive, not a lot, but I received several emails from people seriously pointing out to me that Linda McMahon, who is Vince McMahon's wife, um, who I mentioned had run for Senate in Connecticut and, and all of this, she, Trump, in fact, named her as administrator of the Small Business Administration. So she literally is now... Um, a, a part of the Trump administration, and people were pointing that out to me, and I guess I, I just had kind of glazed over that. So, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> we keep keep saying these things, um, but you know, we'll we'll just kind of keep reinforcing it. Um, and just in the spirit of of wanting to prove that I'm not, you know, I don't I don't hate. I don't hate these people, and I want to say something nice. I want to say something nice about um, the Trump administration, such as it is. And one thing I would like to say that's nice about the Trump administration is how how beautiful and with what class and, and decorum and aplomb that Melania is conducting herself with. She always looks fantastic. She comports herself with with just exquisite grace, it seems to me, and, and she does a great job. She fills, she's filling the role of first lady absolutely beautifully. And, um, I don't want to say that, you know, I'm shocked and surprised by this, but I mean, this woman was a, was a fashion model. So, um, she didn't, she's not, she didn't come up through, through, Ivy League schools and, and things such as that. But then I, I guess having just said that, I guess that's that's a point in her favor is that she didn't come up through this this horrific um, Ivy League culture and all of that. And let's face it, she can't be a dummy because she speaks six languages, four of which I believe are Slavic. And so, you know, she can't be dumb. And I just, in the spirit of, of just wanting to say something nice, 
Melania, it seems to me, is is just exceeding all expectations and doing doing a wonderful job in her role, such as it is. Um, we still pray for her and hope that she gets her personal marriage situation all squared away and uh, and meets a good priest who helps her with all of this. And we're rooting. We're rooting for. We're rooting for her. We're rooting for the kids. We're rooting for everybody. But I just wanted to say that Melania looks great. Loving Melania. She's definitely putting the lady back in first lady as opposed to somebody who appears to be female, and that's a gigantic uh, upgrade in that in that position. Uh, speaking of uh, prayers for Melania and the family and everybody else, we did get an email about uh, a mass offering uh, for for our leaders. Um, let's see. I'm having trouble keeping up with which one. What is the latest one? Oh, Mike Pence. Yes. The Mike Pence. Yeah, the Mike Pence mass. I don't know. I don't know if we mentioned that on the podcast last week or if I typed it. It all kind of it all kinds to start to to merge together what you say on the podcast and what you write on the website. But yes, we have uh we had a mass offered for the reversion of Mike Pence and family. So, awesome, awesome, awesome and anybody who wants wants to do any more of those, let me know. But it seems to me, I think right now, um, if we're going to have any special masses said, if we have a mass campaign for this week, um, I think maybe it should be something, it should be a mass in reparation for not just the sins of sodomy that are going on that, you know, in this orgy that was exposed in, in the Holy Office Palace. But guys, this sodomy is going on all throughout the Vatican. It's and um, I've even been told that there are there's a clique of them that actually meet up and have sex inside St. Peter's Basilica itself. So, you know, I think Father Zulsdorf posted uh, made a piece that said the entire palace of the Holy Office needs to be needs to be exercised. The entire the entire Vatican needs to be exercised. Personal, personally, um, if if I were to find myself in Rome. I, w- I would not step foot inside St. Peter's Basilica. I would not step foot inside of it. Um, knowing what I know now and knowing how even, you know, even though the Blessed Sacrament obviously is reposed there and even though the, the, the bones of St. Peter are there and that's his tomb, that, that space has been so desecrated um, that it, the whole thing needs to be needs to be exercised. And I believe that St. Peter's Basilica needs to be re-consecrated because the desecration is, is that severe. Um, now, this probably is never going to happen. In fact, sadly, if, if, I, had to, if I had to predict, I'd say that the, it'll, it'll be destroyed before that happens, um, whether that be naturally by means of an earthquake or something like that, which is still very much in play on the Italian peninsula, if you watch the seismic uh, reportage feeds, which I do, um, not only watching the uh, the caldera underneath Yellowstone and these big earthquakes they've been having in western Montana, but also keeping an eye over there on on the Italian peninsula, that thing is still rocking and rolling all day, every day. And... Um, and it's it's just it's weird. You look and and the earthquakes on the Italian peninsula just basically surround Rome on on you know three of four sides basically. And it seems to me that it's perhaps just a matter of time before there's a like a six magnitude or even a seven magnitude with an epicenter sufficiently close to Rome that um, I think most of the churches in Rome, if there was a if there was a magnitude seven earthquake. 
with an epicenter anywhere near Rome, it would take down most of the churches there. It would basically, for all intents and purposes, it would destroy Rome. It would certainly destroy the tourist economy, which would be the end of it. And so um, that's what I fear. And, and just, again, looking at confluences of events and everything coming together and everything being exposed, knowing what we know now about these sodomites, just basically using using the Vatican and using St. Peter's as their bathhouse. Um, I'm, I wouldn't step, I wouldn't step foot in it. I think it would be dangerous. I think the demonic infestation and all of that is, is just so severe that one would be endangering oneself, frankly, if one knowingly went in there knowing what's in there. So I guess we'll just leave it at that. Well, you mentioned the Yellowstone Caldera. I believe there's a pretty big one down by Naples, too. It's the same one. I don't think it's Vesuvius, but it, it, it was um, Pompeii, the, the same one that, that went off for Pompeii. That, it doesn't quite rival uh, Yellowstone in terms of the size and magnitude of destruction that could be done. But it's been uh, – I've seen some news reports that it's showing signs of going off pretty soon, and that could trigger multiple other events throughout Italy from – I'm not a seismologist. I just read this online, so who knows? It may or may not be true. Um, Well, absolutely. And the thing about that is it's really, really close to Rome. It's just a few miles south of Rome. The other thing that I kind of foresee is that if there was something like that, any sort of an event that brought tourism to a halt, um, where either people would not go to Rome for tourism or could not go to Rome for tourism, the city would, would essentially, it seems to me, empty out almost all the people who live in Rome own real estate outside of Rome, so they have somewhere to go. It seems to me that it wouldn't take it wouldn't take a whole lot for the Italians, the Romans, to just leave. And then, of course, all of the um, the students, the expats, the seminarians would all be sent home. The whole city would empty out. It seems to me then that it wouldn't be terribly difficult for for this invasion force of musloids that has been imported by Soros in direct conjunction with uh, with anti Pope Bergoglio and his whole and his whole uh, cabal. Um, there's a group. There's a communist front group in Italy. Um, a communist Catholic front group called Sant'Egidio. E-G-I-D-I-O. It's a communist front group. They're at the forefront of this human trafficking of bringing these people in. The other thing I've learned that's very interesting about a lot of the people that are that are being brought into this invasion force that's being brought into, especially among the sub-Saharan Africans, is that what's going on is these sub-Saharan African countries are... um, they're basically emptying out their prisons. So they're taking their violent criminal class, they are shipping them north, getting them across the Sahara, getting them to Libya, putting them on boats, they get the boats three miles off the coast of Libya, and then the the Soros people and the, um, the anti-Pope Bergoglio cabal, these groups, they come and pick them up. So the people that are actually being imported into um, into Europe, it's it's exactly like the French Revolution. I covered this in my Vendée genocide video. The the uh, during the French Revolution, they imported the the prisoners, the violent criminals and prison inmates from you know Prussia and other places like that, and conscripted conscripted them to fight for them, knowing a that they were already they already had violent tendencies and would be extremely violent and and 
terroristic against against the faithful Catholic French who were fighting against the French Revolution. It's exactly the same thing now. They're bringing in basically prisoner mercenaries and and staging them and getting them in place. So if you have a natural disaster of some some sort, you empty out Rome. Um, what you have in place then, and you send out the word, okay, all of these criminals, all of these people mobilize, go to Rome, it's ours. It seems to me that Rome could fall and Rome could be claimed uh, by a Muslim invasion force, not because there was an offensive military uh, operation launched. It would be, it seems to me that the way it could happen is that Rome would be voluntarily abandoned and then the Muslims would come in behind it after presumably a natural disaster or something like that and just occupy it and never leave. And uh, if whatever churches were left standing would obviously then be completely desecrated and so on and so forth. Um, so it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if that's how it plays out. It kind of seems to me that that's these combinations of events, natural disasters and so forth, they all kind of be pointing towards the same thing. Now, nobody can predict the future, but it just seems to me that it, it is appropriate sometimes to look at look at things, how look at the chessboard, how it's set up and anticipate what the enemy's next moves might be. That's kind of what I'm seeing. And hopefully we don't have to include that as a told you so in a, in a future show. Yeah. But yeah, it's a scary yeah. thought and it's you know, very likely. Uh, well, it, you know, you say that, but I but I put in writing on the blog. I think, given all of this this horrific sodomy and desecration and sacrilege, maybe and, and uh, one of my one of my very high level contacts in Rome um, sent me a message that said, "Look, I'm talking to these senior level people in the Curia, very very high up people. There's a handful. There's only a handful of them left that are actually Catholic." And by that, I mean they're not Freemasons and or sodomites. And um, and they have basically given up. They've said, look, this is so deep and the infestation is so thorough and complete of these Freemasons and or sodomites. And let's be honest, the, the Venn diagrams have a huge overlap. Um, one is as good as the other. And this can't this can't be fixed um, by any sort of natural means. And, you know, if you think about it, it makes sense. If you have to get rid of north of 90% of the people in a given bureaucracy, how, how will, how will the, the structure continue to function in any meaningful way? How could you, you execute this purge? You can't. You can't patch the boat. You have to sink it and build a new one. That's exactly right. And so maybe what we should be praying for is we should be especially, you know, going to the Blessed Mother and saying, you know, don't hold back your son's arm anymore. We, we see and understand what's going on here. We just want it to stop. And we, we're willing. We are willing to suffer. We're, I mean, this could, this could imply death for a lot of us. We're ready to die. We just want this monstrosity of a situation to stop. We want these sodomites purged. Whatever it takes, don't hold back his arm anymore. If, if supernatural wrath, if the wrath of God is what it takes to execute this, then, then let it come. We're ready to, to stand the consequence of all of it personally, if that means intense suffering and even if that means death. Some things are more important. God is more important. 
what's best for what what is just and what is owed to God and and the well-being of his holy church so that more people can be can be saved you know whatever if it's time if it's time for this to get real let's do it bring the supernatural wrath well, whether you're referring to it as uh, a celebration of divine justice or making a, a victim offering of yourself, there are historical precedents to this. There was the Carmelite uh, convent that that uh, they all offered themselves uh, to to Christ as a sacrifice if, if the terror would end in France. And the, the very act of, uh, as soon as the last Carmelite nun uh, of that convent was beheaded, the terror ended literally at that moment. The, the, something supernaturally happened. The people realized something was wrong. They rounded up and beheaded the, the head of the, of the terror at that point. So it's, it, Anne's not just pulling this out of left field. There is historical precedent to this. So uh, whether or not you're, you're literally going, to, whether or not God will call on you to literally take your life if you offer it or not, we do need to offer sacrifices for this all to be fixed because there's no, there's no other way to get out of this. Yes. Um, I have a video of that. There's a, a movie, a French movie that was made that depicts um, that what Superner just described, the beheading, that final beheading of that group of Carmelite nuns. It's an extraordinarily moving piece of cinema. And it's the very, very end of the movie. It ends with chop silence and then it cuts to the credits. And it's it's incredibly moving. Watch that. Um Yes. And notice what happens is that um, as as the nuns are all voluntarily walking up the guillotine to be to be murdered after asking Mother Prioress one, uh, one after another right. request permission every to die. Every one of them kneels in front of the Mother Prioress. This is it's so moving and asks permission. It's it's, it's incredible. Would that it were that that just a fraction of us could have that kind of faith and be that strong. And it only took uh, a handful of nuns in that case to state to save France in general from the continuation of, of the of the terror. So, again, historical precedent, and it only takes a handful of people to to uh, move the heartstrings of God, so to speak. Exactly, and doesn't that speak so so clearly to the situation in the church today? I'm convinced that one person. One cardinal, one one of the surviving now, the surviving three, as they're being called lovingly, the Dubia brothers, one press conference, one press conference could change the course of history radically, radically. It wouldn't take, I think that's what will be revealed to us at the general judgment, is that we will be shown and, and we will, I'm sure we will all just cry out in agony when this is revealed to us. We will be shown how simple, how easy it would have been to to affect positive change, to, to turn the course of history. Just one of these men, one of these men acting with virilis, virility and potency could potentially be enough to change the course of all of this. One, one faithful cardinal calling a press conference and saying, I, I've become morally certain that Bergoglio is, in fact, not the pope. It would, ch- it would change everything. Absolute game changer instantaneously. Uh, but uh, frankly, I'm, I'm sorry to say I have no hope of that ever happening. You would, it would definitely be a miracle if something like that were to happen. Uh, yeah. something, something that would also take a tremendous miracle, although not quite to the same level and not quite as supernatural, would be uh, in, here in the United States. Uh, the congressional Republicans are now saying that the repeal of Obamacare might not be possible. 
again, color me surprised, but yeah. we've mentioned this before. But then again, it's never been about healthcare. It's probably been more about money laundering, right? Of course, absolutely. Um, this healthcare racket, not just in the United States, but in the entire world, but the the United States is the exemplar of it because it's where it's where the situation is the most extreme. Because the cost, the cost curve on healthcare is out of control. It's increasing nine percent per year. Um, this is this is an exponential rate of increase, completely unsustainable. It will consume everything, and the cost curve increase is not being addressed by anyone, anyone, nobody. In fact, what they're doing is just making it worse. More insurance, more um, more detachment of the consumer from the price structure of of healthcare commodities and services. Everybody has horror stories about this. Everybody does. You go and, you know, you go to the emergency room and you get some sort of a bill that's just absolutely outlandish. Um, You can't afford to pay for anything anymore. They've intentionally made it, allowed these costs to inflate and inflate and inflate with insurance having been the primary vector of this. But now it's going to transform into a single payer system, which is what they all want. The reason they want this is because the main vector of of graft and larceny and basically money laundering is to have these middlemen standing between the patient and whoever is delivering the healthcare commodities and services and the billing structure for all of this. So I wrote about this in 2000, 2012, I think, where I grew up outside of Kansas City. There's a group of nuns called the Sisters of Charity. And I saw a news piece um, in 2012 uh, swirling about Ob- Obamacare and um, the Sisters of Charity were, of course, they're all a bunch of lesbians. They're totally a bunch of lesbians. And so, and the place, the town where I grew up was filled with all of these lesbian ex-nuns who were hanging around. Um, And I saw this news piece that this group, the Sisters of Charity, are worth, they have like a $3 billion portfolio. They have a Fitch rating. Fitch ratings are quality ratings for um, publicly traded bonds. This this is a pure for-profit organization And what their business is and what the entire business now of the Catholic Church and all healthcare delivery paradigms now, it it isn't just the Catholic Church, but because the Catholic Church and also other Christian churches, I mean, you see there's lots of hospitals that are called, for example, just making something up, St. Luke's Methodist or um, St. Joseph Presbyterian Hospital, you know, there's, why? Why was there so much Christian involvement in hospitals? Because that's what the church is supposed to do. Who is supposed to be providing health care for the indigent poor? It's one of the corporal works of mercy. It's one of the corporal works of mercy. And I will also hasten to point out that the church is supposed to eat 100% of the costs of health care delivery for the indigent poor. That's the point. You're supposed to eat the costs, okay? People tithe, people give money, hospitals and like things like this are endowed one way or the other. They take that money and they 
burn it in a sense. You see what I'm saying? They just burn it on giving health care to people who, who can't pay for it or can only pay partially or whatever it is. And then also attached to these same institutions, people who can pay, again, go to the same hospital because the facilities are there, but they, they would be billed at a proper rate because there's, there's engagement with the market. You can ask, okay, how much is this MRI going to cost? And if I can go to a private MRI studio somewhere else, and I, and you know, my, my, presumably my condition isn't super urgent, I can shop around and I can see, wait a minute, if I can get, if I can get the same MRI at this private MRI studio over here for 250 bucks, why would I pay 1500 over here at this hospital? See, that dynamic wouldn't exist because there would be there would be a market for all of these things and and the costs would be commensurate with what the actual let's face it what what the actual value of the commodity is and i'm not going to go through the whole example again but if you want to understand what i'm talking about just think about lasik eye surgery okay price level just going almost straight down while at the same time the quality of the technology for the for the service itself is increasing 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 that is what should be going on with all healthcare technologies, all scan, all MRIs, all CAT scans, all of these things, cancer treatments, everything. Everything should be on a declining cost curve because by definition, these things are technologies and technologies always, always um, develop over time on a, on a declining cost curve plane. The reason why things are increasing is because of this larcenous, um, criminal racket that has been established by these communist Freemasons who have infiltrated the church and also other people who have, who have set up private organizations who have seen the same cash cow that they're tapping into, saying, okay, we're not going to tell anyone what anything costs. Everyone has insurance, so nobody's going to ask what anything costs. It's just going to be, oh, well, the insurance will pay for it. Or, oh, well, Medicare will pay for it. Oh, well, Medicaid will pay for it. Hmm. Nobody asks what anything costs. And so what these criminals see is that they can mark things up by literally orders of magnitude. There are some commodities that are marked up by a factor of 1,000. I mean, there are, you know, Things like getting billed um, twenty bucks for a for a piece of gauze or something like that—that that literally happens. That's how these people are making these enormous amounts of money. Sisters of Charity in outside of Kansas City. How how do they have a three billion dollar anything? It isn't just real estate holdings. It isn't just the appreciation in suburban real estate holdings. The reason they have all this money is because this is a ginormous money laundering scheme to get reimbursement oftentimes from the federal government. And once we go single payer, it will all be from the federal government. So if, if you're tight with the government and, and you're in bed with the government, you're going to get a tap. You're going to get to tap into this huge money laundering thing. And then the expectation will be that, A, not only do you implement the satanic um, culture of death agenda of, of the government, 
it's not only that, but it, there will also be the expectation that you will give donations to politicians and super PACs, and that all goes back directly to the politicians. We know that all of that, what all of that running for office and all of that is, these people just sh set up these shell corporations and these shell businesses, consultancies is a lot of time what, what it's called. They take in money, these these campaign donations, and then they hire their brother-in-law to run shell company, shell consultancy number one. And they hire their buddy to run shell consultancy number two. And it just it's just this big incestuous circle of money laundering. And don't think for a second that all of this business with this health care billions and billions and now trillions and trillions of dollars being laundered in this way. Meanwhile, this is financially devastating almost everyone who isn't just super, super rich. Look at what's happened to your own health insurance costs. You shouldn't even need to have health insurance. The only health insurance that should be even on the table is, is super catastrophe. You get greased by a drunk driver. You're in the hospital for a year, that, that sort of thing. That's the only sort of protection that insurance should be providing. The reason why is because everything else should be affordable. Even if you have something that ends up costing you, let's say $5,000, even people who are not terribly wealthy at all can somehow, some way, scrape together five grand. Al almost anyone. Now, yeah, granted, there are people who can't scrape together five grand, but almost anyone else can scrape together five grand. And then for the people who can't scrape together five grand, again, we go back to what we were talking about before. before. The true mission of the church in terms of the corporal works of mercy, which is tending to and healing the sick. Um, so you see how disordered this is, and it's never going to get fixed. And I'm telling you, all of this drive towards socialized medicine and single payer, all of this crap, the church is behind it. Uh, the institutional church, the infiltrated church is absolutely behind all of this because this is the money-making racket. And if you think about it, what they've done is because, you know, since the asteroid hit, 90% of Catholics in the West basically have stopped practicing Catholicism. Um, tithe revenues just down, 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 down. How, how they look at this situation, they say, okay, how are we going to replace this revenue stream? What they're doing is they have taken all the works of charity that the church is supposed to be doing. They've laid all of it off on the government and then set themselves up as a for-profit middleman which essentially what you're doing is you're inflicting a forced tithe on the citizenry through their taxes. So you're using the, the, the Internal Revenue Service and the tax regime as your de facto uh, source of tithing because everyone has left the church because of, you know, the failed Second Vatican Council, the Novus Ordo Mass. And again, people are listening to this and rolling their eyes and saying, oh, here she goes again, talking about this. You can deny this all you want, but you look historically at what happened, that when that happened from 1965 to 1970, and then it only took a few years after that, almost everybody left and the tithe revenues just went straight down.
they said we have to replace this somehow. This government thing, this is how they've done it. That's what's behind all of it. And a centralization of, of um, resources like that, that never goes wrong, does it? Mm. No. In fact, it's the, the, the utopia of this is playing out as we speak in Venezuela. And so anybody who, um, who wants to see what this is like or even live under it, you just all you need to do is get yourself to Venezuela. Now, I don't think you can fly there because I don't think the airport is functioning. And even if and you could, you, getting back is another problem. Getting back is another problem. And also you're going to need to d- uh, acquire a taste for human flesh because apparently the Venezuelans are now reverting to cannibalism. Wonderful. Yeah. Oh, and one other point that I wrote down in my notes about this um, in terms of the church is um, in terms of the church's um, care for the sick, what was huge in that was care for the mentally ill. And there's basically, you know, what I'm seeing, what we all see now is that there are so many people who are desperately mentally ill, who need to be institutionalized. And I know this is a, this is a very delicate line to walk, but, but it has to be said because it is true. There's a tremendous amount of schizophrenia. Um, j- just check my, check my email box if you ever want to see what, what schizophrenia looks like no and thanks. what's incredible. Yeah, no thanks. And what's incredibly sad now is that we see this proliferation of marijuana. And if you you put marijuana on top of a, uh, on top of schizophrenia, it's just it's it's horrific. It's horrific to observe and so sad. And it could be treated. These people could be helped. It should be the domain of the church. The church should be one of the main institutions providing health and lodge health care and lodging for the mentally ill. And of course, nobody's doing that. It's almost impossible now to get anyone declared incompetent. Um, people who desperately need this help don't get it. The homeless in the United States, the vast majority of the homeless are homeless because they are mentally ill and it's their own choice to be homeless. Um, the number of people who are homeless because they, you know, they are sleeping on, on the street somewhere because they can't find anywhere else. I, that's incredibly, that percentage is just, it's minuscule. It's absolutely minuscule. Most of these people that you see out, out and about that are homeless are mentally ill and they should be in an institution somewhere. But since nobody, since nobody will engage this, and since the church certainly isn't going to engage this, because this would mean presumably cutting into, um, cutting into their $3 billion bond portfolio. And that's just one little order of nuns, you know, they're, they're not going to, because they aren't, they don't actually believe any of it. Um, they're not actually going to just burn money on people like this. They have no interest in that because that's actually Catholicism, you know, and heaven forbid. So they're not going to engage any of this. And then what they're going to do is they're going to take these homeless people and they're going to use them. They're going to hold them up as these as these, you know, propaganda instruments and tools. Oh, look at all of these poor, poor homeless people. We need a we need socialism. We need a universal income. No, we need to build mental hospitals. That's what we need to do. We need to build very large mental hospitals and have Christian people providing these people with the health care that they so desperately need. And a lot of them could be, I don't want to say 100% cured, but a lot of them could be helped in, in significant ways. 
And uh, we're, we're just not doing that. Nobody has any interest in doing that. The mentally ill are a greater value to these, these Freemasonic Marxist wretches. They're of more use to them being um, untreated and destitute and sleeping out on the street than they are being actually helped and cured. It makes me wonder if, if uh, the, the level of mental illness is a reflection of the amount of I'll say mendacity or, or just lack of truth in society that, that at, a, at a natural level, people can understand this and it could actually cause a level of dissociation when you see one thing being said about the world and society around you, but you can clearly see the opposite. Certainly. Um, I think, I think it contributes and I'm also, you know, I'm a fairly sciencey kind of person. I think there are also a lot of instances where people's brains just malfunction on, on a chemical level and, and there's help and treatment for that. But yes, I absolutely agree that this business of, you know, holding false premises, holding, um, contradictory premises after a while, it seems to me that that would drive somebody absolutely insane and that you would you would have to start losing your mind. And the other thing we also need to mention is demonic oppression. Um, there's if you talk to exorcists, they always say the first thing that they're taught in their training is um, you you really need to learn how to discern the difference between mental illness and actual demonic involvement. And the exorcists report back that, yeah, uh, in excess of 90 percent of the people that they see are simply suffering from some sort of some sort of a mental illness. They're generally schizophrenic. Um, but there is also, there is also an increasing incidence of demonic oppression, which stands to reason because as the culture falls away from God, turns to the culture of death, sodomy, child murder, and now we're even seeing, um, in the United States and, and in the Western world, a significant increase in the open worshiping of Satan and satanic rituals and so forth. Um, as that all happens, you can expect that yes, demonic oppression will increase. And, and that's how, you know, it will, it will drive people into, into, what we can just generally term levels of insanity. And you're going to see more, more mental disturbance and things like this. No question. And as you mentioned in a, in a previous show, uh, one, one of the spiritual problems surrounding sodomy is, is, is the, the legions and retinues of devils surrounding that. Um, I guess that, that sort of goes hand in hand as well. The, the higher, um, the, the, the more the more we have the sodomical agenda advanced, the more you're going to see demonic oppression across the across Certainly. the board. Certainly, and also pornography and like heterosexual pornography. What what a vector! What a, an entrance for for demons. I mean, you open up porn on your computer or your phone or whatever it is, and demons are just right there instantly, instantly. Uh, and look at how look at the prevalence of this and children the prevalence of pornography usage among little bitty kids um it's it's really it's really frightening to think about i don't recall where i read this but it's something along the lines that even heterosexual pornography is of its very nature homosexual because you are separating the the essential act of creating life uh, and and the the real purpose of 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 life from the I, shall we say sensual enjoyment of something? Uh, yeah, you, you yeah. are you are essentially sterilizing the act at that point, and that is by definition uh, contrary to nature. That's homosexual. 
Well, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think Thomas says in the Summa that um, self-abuse, masturbation, for those of you in Yorba Linda, um, self-abuse is actually graver than, and, and this is this is pretty intense, is graver than sodomy because it is the complete inward turning of um, of the person, you know, and, and now that we've, we've done our research on diabolical narcissism and we realize we can see that point. It's that complete turning in on yourself, purging yourself of all love so that at that point, even sensual pleasure is completely revolved around the self. Now, you have to be careful who you discuss this with, because some people would take that to mean, oh, St. Thomas said that sodomy is 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 OK. It's if you're if you have the choice between sodomy and masturbation, well, you should get no, 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 no. Just don't even be dumb like that. Don't even make an argument like that. But it, it's it's an interesting thing to think about the the whole spiritually what it's doing when you're just completely cutting yourself off from all other human beings. And yeah, that's exactly all, all porn is mas- masturbatory. That's the point. That's the point indeed. And uh, talk, talking about the point, we were talking about healthcare and how that tends to centralize, at least the way it's being run now. It's it's centralizing everything in, you know, to run through the federal budget. And I see that um, Bergoglio has been calling for a federal Europe. I guess they're going to get the same thing in, in the United States of Europe now. All, all your money goes through Brussels and to, to pay for everything. Yeah, well, there's there's no more denying. There's no more denying what this this filthy wretch Bergoglio, what his agenda is, who he's in bed with. So he's given, I think this is the fifth or sixth interview that he has given to this editor of this uh, very famous communist Italian newspaper. And I think, what is it, La Repubblica? I think I think it's La Repubblica. And this, this guy's name, this editor's name is uh, Eugene Scalfari. And so Bergoglio is giving him five or six interviews where he's just said, you know, stunningly, stunningly heretical, um, just evil things. Scalfari prints all this. And then sometimes they even post these interviews on the Vatican website containing just blatant heresy. And there's never any correction, never is anything walked back. And what's infuriating to me is that nobody, no one in the press even confronts uh, anyone about any of this. You know, Bergoglio was just quoted as saying XYZ, which is in direct contradiction to Catholic dogma. Do you have any anything to say about this? Nobody even asks the questions. Well, in this last interview, um, Bergoglio says to this Scalfari wretch, um, let me just read the quote. Let's not fool ourselves. Poor peoples have an attraction to the continents and countries of old wealth above all Europe. I, too, have often thought about this problem, and I have arrived at the conclusion that not only for but also this reason, here's the money quote, Europe must assume as soon as possible a federal government and a federal parliament, not from individual confederated countries. You yourself, talking to Scalfari, have raised this topic many times and have even spoken of it in the European Parliament. It's true. I've raised this many times. Oh, well, maybe maybe that was a back and forth right there. It's unclear by the context. And you receive great applause and even standing ovations. Yes, that's so. But unfortunately, that doesn't mean much. 
They will do that if they figure out the truth. Either Europe, listen to this, they will do that if they figure out the truth. Either Europe becomes a federal community or won't count for anything in the world. You can no longer deny that what this what this jackass is looking to do is to set up eventually a one world government. But it, start with Europe first. And he explicitly says he's calling for the abolition of of the sovereignty of all of the nations of Europe and establishing a federal government with a federal parliament, not from individual confederated countries. If you want a conspiracy theory, if you want one that's actually real, here it is. They're now coming out and saying it explicitly. There's no more hiding behind it. Um, And there has been suspicion for many, many, many years that the beginning of the one world government of the Antichrist would would certainly be Europe. And and here it is. It seems to me you've got an anti-pope in Rome who's in bed with this, who is of the Antichrist, maybe, and it looks ever more likely with each passing day, the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist, now explicitly calling for the abolition of the, the, the sovereign nations of Europe. I mean, this is, I, 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 how can you argue this anymore? There it is. He's now saying it plainly. I, I, I tongue in cheek say, I very much look forward to this being explained around and, oh, well, that, that Scalfari has admitted that he, he doesn't use a recording device. So that might be a misquote. No, it isn't. I'm sorry, but just stop that, all of you, all of you who are on this this business of trying to defend this man, for the love of God, for the love of God, would you please just stop it? You know, you know what he is, you know what his agenda is, you know all these these Scalfari pieces are, are accurate, you know they're accurate, and yet you just keep trying to, to weasel your way out of this. And that this goes back to what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks with this business of tribalism. You, I cannot tell you how much you are discrediting yourself and how much it, it destroys your credibility when, when people are looking from the outside, looking in, looking at you clearly, obviously engaging in blatant tribalism. Uh, well, I'm going to defend anything anyone says as long as they're wearing the quote-unquote jersey of my sports team. As long as they're wearing the, the right color jersey, whatever they do, I will defend. People of integrity, people of goodwill who are looking from the outside in at the church and at these situations, they look at you people who are doing this, and it is absolutely repulsive. It is repellent. It makes them want to run in the opposite direction. They look at people and they say, these people clearly have no integrity. They clearly are willing to deceive themselves and others in order to engage in this tribalism. And it's disgusting. The reason why I have the number of people who email me, and despite all of the horrible things that I am talking about day in and day out on this website, 
the reason people are emailing me and saying, okay, I want to, I want to join the Catholic church. Can you please point me in the right direction? Send me a list of, of nearby parishes where I can be assured that I'm going to get the old mass and that they're actually going to be Catholic. Why in the world do, would anybody want in given all of the horrible things I report about? And why would they ask me? It's because I have credibility because I don't engage in tribalism. I'll call anybody out. If, if you're, if you're a, a malefactor, if you're malignant, if you're an anti-pope, and I become morally certain of this, the truth is the truth. I'll call you out. Um, you, you, I don't understand how it is that people can't see that this, you know, appealing to people's normalcy bias and appealing to people's effeminacy by denying objective reality right in front of you, you're, the only people you're attracting with that are effeminates with intense normalcy bias. You're not attracting anybody of, of integrity and virility into the church. You're not evangelizing. Um, maybe the PayPal button keeps racking up the donations, but you're, you're not, you're not winning souls into the church. Um, I, it, it really frustrates me, but now, you know, the, the rubber is really hitting the road on this stuff. And now we have the anti-pope openly calling for the, the destruction of the, the sovereign nations of Europe. So <sighs> Chinese curse, may you live in interesting days. We certainly are. Something that really jumps out at me, two points here, are the, the last part of his quote, either Europe will become a federal community or it won't count for anything in the world. Why do we care about counting for anything in the world? We're not made for this world. And secondly, Having a federal Europe runs directly opposed to Catholic social doctrine, which is which really favors uh, subsidiary. Having many smaller states in a very loose confederation getting along with each other, according to the uh, the rules of how Christians get along with each other, uh, this this call me George is is saying quite the opposite in both points. Exactly. Well, you know, false premise number one that Bergoglio actually believes in any of the truths of of Catholicism. He does not. He is, he is its enemy. Um, and I'm so glad you brought up subsidiarity. Europe, and let's be honest, probably, probably the former U.S. as well, but especially Europe, there are not nearly enough countries, sovereign nations in Europe right now. And this is a function of, you know, the post-World War I, post-World War II, all of this. There are so many of these regions that need to be broken up um, and need to be, you know, the region of northern Italy, it needs to be its own its own nation. Central Italy needs to be its own nation. Southern Italy needs to be its own nation. Maybe Sicily needs to be its own nation. I'm not as I'm not as familiar with the geography of Germany and all up in there, but obviously, I mean, you can split all of those little regions off, go back, and I'm I'm convinced that after the triumph of the Immaculate Heart, oh, there will be sovereign nations, absolutely. And there will be many, many, many more than there are now. Subsidiarity, this keeps everything in check. It keeps power in check. Nobody gets to be too powerful. Um, and then w when the need arises, for example, to fight to fight the Musloids or whatever, then all of these little nations would come together and form, you know, and form a navy or form an army that would then go ahead and defend defend the entirety of Christendom. Hopefully, after the triumph of the Immaculate Heart, there won't be any Islam, though. So, <laughs> go ahead, Super Nerd. 
Well, in prior to the Masonic unification of Italy, I want to say it was at least 60 or 70 city-states. In fact, the whole idea of city-states really comes out of Italy. And of course, prior to the overthrow of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, what we know is the German state now was 20 or 30 independent states. Uh, France, even though it was the largest singular country in Christendom, the king had very little coercive power over the regions. The counts uh, had, had more coercive control down to the smaller areas. And I've made the, the comment to friends who I, when I, when I say if I, if I was the Catholic monarch of the United States, the states themselves actually would be broken up down to the county size because the smaller the better. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, there's more direct accountability. Um, the, the people who, who actually have power in a certain region have to look their, their constituents in the eye every single day. They have to live in community with these people. And so there's a level of, a level of accountability there. Bergoglio does not believe in any of this. Naturally, um, Bergoglio is about power. Um, the, the concentration of power specifically around the person, his own person. Um, and he will say anything, do anything, get in bed with anyone in order to draw and what he believes to be, you know, coalesce more power unto himself, um, as, as wicked people tend to do. So yes, what he's saying is completely anti-Catholic, but again, he, he, you can't say that somebody isn't Catholic, but he is, he hates God and his holy church. Now he, he is inside of it. Um, all heretics by definition are inside of it. He hasn't formally apostatized yet. He might, if he sets up a completely different, uh, different church with a lowercase C, a completely different religion. Um, and there is talk that he is trying to, that he has a commission that's forming a new non-mass mass. And that if he attempts to promulgate this, this will basically be setting up a completely separate, different religion. And then he denounces um, he denounces the the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, or tries to tries to say that it no longer exists. Let's put it, that would probably be um, the more accurate way to put it. He will probably try to convince the world that the one true church no longer exists, and that the only thing that exists is his new church that he's trying to set up. At that point, he would be an apostate. But for now, he actually, he even though he's an arch heretic and maybe the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist and certainly an antipope, he's still inside the church. Um, he could repent of all of this tomorrow. One, one confession, one visit to the confessional could erase all of this, which is, again, such an incredible testimony to, to God's mercy. But he would have to mean it. And at this point, again, short of supernatural intervention, I, I really don't see that happening. And I believe, Super Nerd, we have an, one last news story that's kind of a, a proof set and anecdote about that. I was just going to say, they talk about the, the, the trend of, of, of Bergoglio amassing all the power and wielding it so forcefully in spite of all the established rules and customs. Yes, the, the, the opening uh, sentence of this article, in an absolutely scandalous display of sacrilege and hubris, George Bergoglio, or Pope Benedict, Pope Francis, if you really want to call him that, in the middle of two, 2013, demanded that Cardinal Mueller cease offering the Holy Mass, even, even if it was in the Novus Ordo Rite, in order to attend to a conversation with him in the sacristy. Um, I don't know all the rules around um, the, the, the conditions under which uh, a priest can leave the altar in, in the new Mass. I don't know if there actually are provisions in, in, the, in the, the new new law about that, but... Uh, you basically had the priest had to be killed in order to be taken off the off the altar in the old mass, and that has happened before. You are not to interrupt the mass once it starts. 
Yes, and, and then and now the bishop, also, now the bishop in white is saying, "Hey, come here, come back to the sacristy. I want to talk to you." Yeah. Um, not only that, but if if a priest is either murdered or dies, like for example, has a heart attack and dies on the altar, then obviously you tend to him. But then what has to happen is that another priest has to come and finish that mass. This is this is huge. You cannot you a, a priest cannot come off the altar and interrupt and just stop saying mass in the middle of mass. You can't do this. So um, I, I think it's once the once the offertory starts, you have to complete the mass, whether it's another priest or uh, who has to finish it for them. Uh, and the uh, only yes. reason I know that is from training altar altar servers. When I was back in high school, that was one of the things that the the MCs had to learn is that if for some reason uh, the priest falls over dead or some other yeah, force majeure yeah. happens, once the offertory starts, you've got to find another priest to finish the mass. Right, right. So um, Bergoglio in 2013 in this reportage by a one of the most reputable Italian Vaticanistas and Vaticanistas are people who report on the Vatican. Um so he, he apparently he's just getting he's had enough of all of this. And he has this entire four years of all these notes of, of anecdotes and things he's been told that he hasn't published. And with this deal of uh, Bergoglio firing Cardinal Mueller, who was the head of the, the CDF, which is the, the body that's supposed to ensure um, ensure the, the correctness and so forth of all text and promulgations and so on and so forth. Um, now I'm, I'm no fan of Mueller. He's a complete coward and he, he just laid down and died in front of Bergoglio. Um, but Bergoglio did fire him just, um, last week, I think. And now here comes Tosadi reporting this anecdote that happened to Mueller in 2013, uh, which would be just a few months after Bergoglio, um, usurped and began squatting on, on the Sea of Peter. Bergoglio goes to wherever Mueller was inside the Vatican, and Mueller was saying Mass. So he's in the chapel and he's offering Mass. Bergoglio is back in the sacristy, and somebody scampers out and, and gets the MC, the Master of Ceremonies of Mueller's Mass, and grabs him and says, Hey, uh, Bergoglio is standing in the sacristy and he wants, he wants to talk to Mueller. So the MC goes back in the sacristy and the quote that is being reported here is actually kind of a mistranslation. The quote, the quote is, um, the MC goes back out and, and, you know, goes up to Mueller who's in the middle of saying mass and whispers to him, the Pope wants to speak to you. And Mueller says back to the MC, did you tell him I'm celebrating mass? And the MC says back, yes, but he says he does not mind. He wants to talk to you all the same. Now, this is a mistranslation, um, a, a mistranslation of the colloquialism. It's not that, that he said Bergoglio doesn't mind that you're saying mass. Bergoglio doesn't care that you're saying mass. And you can see how someone who isn't a native English speaker might make that mistranslation and miss that, that subtlety in the colloquialism. But there's a big difference between saying he doesn't mind and he doesn't care. And if you think about it in context, for Bergoglio to say, oh, I don't mind that you're saying mass, that doesn't make any sense. What Bergoglio said to the MC is he's standing back there in the sacristy, the MC says, well, Card Cardinal Mueller's offering mass right now. And Bergoglio says, I don't care. I want to talk to him anyway. 
Mueller, being a craven coward, then leaves the altar in the midst of the holy sacrifice, goes back into the sacristy, and what does it say? Uh, the cardinal went to the sacristy. The pope, in a very bad mood, which, guys, Bergoglio's a psychopath, all that grinning, all that grinning, that's all bullshit. That's all a complete facade, okay? This guy is is just awful. Every report of him is that he is an awful person. The Pope, in a very bad mood, gave him some orders and a dossier concerning one of his friends, that is one of Mueller's friends, a cardinal. And then Tosadi says in parentheses, this is a very delicate matter. I have sought an explanation of this incident from the official channels until the explanation comes. If it ever comes, I cannot give further details. Obviously, Mueller was flabbergasted. So Mueller is known since 2013 that Bergoglio basically does not believe anything about Catholicism. For him to call, it, it doesn't even matter if it's if it's just a lowly priest or or if it's a cardinal. It doesn't matter what the rank of, of the clergyman is. To call somebody off of the altar in the middle of mass is clear indication that Bergoglio doesn't believe in any of this. I've written, and I keep reposting this essay, they don't actually believe any of that bullshit. And I put bullshit in quotation marks because they think of the Catholic faith and all of the, you know, the belief in a triune Godhead who incarnated in the second person, died for our sins, rose from the dead. The holy sacrifice of the mass is the bloody representation in time of that one once and for all sacrifice. They don't believe in the Eucharist. They don't believe in transubstantiation. They don't believe in judgment. They don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in hell. They don't believe in anything. They believe in themselves. They believe in their own personal power. And they believe in their, and most of them, they believe in their quest for sodomy, oftentimes with children. That's what these people believe in. I, I just don't know what it's going to take for people who keep going and commenting on, on blog posts and threads and say, I just don't understand how the Holy Father could have possibly said or done this or that. It's because he doesn't actually believe any of it. Will you please wake up? Bergoglio calling any, any cleric off of the altar in the middle of a mass so that he could give him a dossier so that he could presumably character assassinate some other cardinal. And I mean, if I had to lay money, Cardinal Burke, just given the timeline, because Cardinal Burke was thrown out of, he fired him from his, his position at the Roman Rota, I believe, um, pretty, pretty shortly after that. He, um, Cardinal Burke was one of Bergoglio's primary enemies from the very beginning. He knew he had to get rid of, of Cardinal Burke. Um, it wouldn't surprise me at all if that's what it is. So you, you're the pope. You know, he's really the anti-pope, but you're the pope. You go into a sacristy. You call a cardinal off the altar so that you can hand him a dossier to character assassinate some other some other cardinal. I'm sorry. How can you possibly make the argument at this point that Bergoglio believes anything about the Catholic faith, anything. 
He clearly doesn't. He doesn't believe in the mass. He doesn't believe in the Eucharist. Nothing. He believes in himself. And I think this is this is a very, very important anecdote. It shows how evil Bergoglio is, how faithless he is, and it needs to be publicized far and wide. And, and we'll put the link up to it. And Cardinal Mueller is one of the Dubia brothers? No, he he's the head of the CDF. Um, um, Congregation Meisner for the Doctrine is, of the Faith. Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Meisner is the, one, the Dubia brother that just died, sadly. Um, and so now there are only three left. But Mueller was head of the CDF, and he actually, the, the Dubia was, when it's submitted, it's submitted to both Bergoglio and Mueller in his, in his capacity as the head of the CDF. Mueller should have answered it, too, and he, and he didn't. And he did nothing. He laid down and died in front of Bergoglio, and people are saying now— um, Mueller has said he intends to hang around Rome, and I. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Mueller is trying to position himself as being, you know, successor. Whether whether the next conclave is is legitimate and it actually is a conclave, or if it's not, if Ratzinger's still alive, it won't be a legitimate conclave. But these people don't care about that. Again, most of them they they just don't care. They don't believe, and they don't care. And so what he wants is the power, uh, and he's probably setting himself up, thinking that he's going to be, the word that they use is papabile, uh, able to be elected pope, and he's essentially positioning himself for that now. He's, he's a coward. He laid down and died. He, he, at this point, he could have called a press conference and spilled the beans on all of this stuff, and he's known, now we know. Now we know that Mueller has known since early on in 2013, just a few short months into this anti-papacy, he knew what kind of a wretched, faithless animal Bergoglio was. And he's just continued to, to, oh, I have the utmost loyalty to Pope Francis and blah, 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 blah. We know what kind of man Mueller is now, too. So if it's if if it's not a matter of people at at high levels not believing any of it, then there's the matter of effeminacy, not willing to do the arduous thing for the sake of the truth, and that, that reminds me of a comment you made earlier about getting emails from folks wanting to know where where's the closest parish that they can go to that has the traditional mass and sacraments. Um, prepare for the response to be a a reference to your local U-Haul office because you may have to move. Yep. It's yep. This is the kind of thing we're getting to the point. Even though, even though since. Um, 1988, the the instances and locations where you can find the old mass is a lot more common now. It's not so common that you, you know, in the majority of places around, even the, say the United States, you're probably going to have to drive an hour or more to be able to find a mass. It, it's it's oh, still not it's not on every only, corner. If you're only an hour away, you're you're in great shape. You're in fantastic shape because remember, for a lot of metropolitan areas, if you live on the southeast side. Of, for example, let's just call it Denver, and I'm just speaking completely hypothetically here. If you live on the southeast side of Denver and there's a mass on the northwest side of Denver, it can it can take you an hour to do that, um, depending on traffic and and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, if you're only an hour away by car, if you have a car, fantastic. Um, for me at this point, if you are if you are a single person. If you are, let's say, for example, the kind of person who works from home, works on the Internet, let's say, um, you, you really hypothetical, you don't have any you don't have any attachments, really. You can pretty much live where you want. Um, I, at this point, do not have any comprehension of how it could be that you could be that you could be a believing 
Catholic who wanted to go to, to the mass of the ages and how it is that you could choose to live somewhere where you weren't within very easy distance of getting to mass. And for me at this point, you know, I'm, I've been without a car now for, for four years and, oh boy, talk about, talk about a relief. (laughs) But my, I've said this before and I'll say it again. My prayer every single day is keep the church militant visible and keep me within easy walking distance, walking distance of daily old mass. I have bookmarked on my computer um, the various listings, uh, both for the United, for North America and for the, for the entire world. So that if anybody asks me, okay, where's, where's the closest old mass, I can pull up these lists and, and just, you know, it's sorted by stage or by region or whatever it is. And you just go down the line and look, those, those are your options. In terms of where you're going to live, those are your options. You, and you back out of it from there. That's your starting point, and then you find the one that works best for you. And right now, I'm, I'm in one of the best spots in the world, probably. You know, I'm just a, a, a very short walk away from, from a parish that has daily mass. And I'll stay here as long as I can. And then when it's time to move and go on to the next place, okay, I'm going to pull up that list and I'm going to see, okay, where can I be that I am, that I can live within walking distance? There will not even having to use public transport. I'm just, I'm not even willing to rely on that. I want to be able to walk under my own power to mass. That is my priority, period, full stop. The holy sacrifice of the mass, um, Eucharistic adoration, being able to go to confession at any time, whenever I want it, that is the priority for me. And for a person in my situation, unmarried, no children, works, such as it is, so much as you can call this work, works on the internet from home, um, I'm sorry, there is zero excuse. And beyond that, I have a responsibility to my benefactors um, and really a responsibility, it seems to me, to to the entire world and mankind that I, I am to be praying earnestly for, for not only my benefactors, but for the church militant in total um, in reparation for all of these sins and sacrileges. I, I really need to be going to mass and being um, in where the blessed sacrament is reposed and even, even better when, where the blessed sacrament is exposed, preferably every day, preferably every day, there is no excuse for me in my position and the fact, and especially the fact that I take donations from people. There is no excuse for me to not move heaven and earth and do everything I possibly can to see to it that I am within easy walking distance of daily mass. This this is my responsibility. Um, so I just wanted to get that off of my chest. Now, I, I will concede that since I am a completely independent person, for other people who have families, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, there, there's more to consider. But there are now enough masses, um, especially in, in the U.S., there are enough masses around that it seems to me that if you have a car, you should be able to work something out to where you're within a reasonable driving distance. And I mean, I'm sorry, but driving an hour is no big deal. 
driving 90 minutes is no big deal. There was a family that lived um, east of Colorado Springs. And when the, the new mass was promulgated in 1970, they, they saw it the first Sunday of Advent in horror and said, there's no way that we're doing this. They found out that there was a priest in South Dakota, up around Rapid City, I think, who, was, who just refused, refused to say the Novus Ordo Mass. And the, the bishop up there just kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, okay, I'll let that old codger do what he wants. Well, this family, east of Colorado Springs, found out about this. And do you know what these people did? They packed into their car every Saturday morning, drove from, from east of Colorado Springs 10 hours up to basically Rapid City, South Dakota, spent the night, went to Mass Sunday morning, got back in the car, ate, I think they ate something, got back in the car, and then drove all the way back home to uh, east of Colorado Springs. And they did that for 20 years until there was another mass that came closer to them. They gave up their weekends for 20 years, drove a 20-hour round trip every week so that they could assist at the holy sacrifice of the mass in, in solemnity and reverence and piety. You know, it, worshiping God in a way that God wants to be worshiped and this paradigm that he has established for us, for us to worship him in and not worship ourselves. And that's the sacrifice that those people made. So when people email back to me about, you know, I can't, I can't drive a few minutes or uh, I, can't, I can't walk anywhere. I can't, I can't walk uphill because that, that's just too much. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I, I just think about that family and their witness of 20 years of 20 hour round trips every single weekend. And uh, sorry, I'm not buying it move. If you, if you can't get to mass, move. And for people rolling their eyes at, at, at uh, such dedication to going to the mass, just change the context for a minute and, and think about how people are portrayed as super loyal, super fans who follow, whether it's a, a rock band or a ball team around uh, yeah. traveling with them and, and, and keeping the faith, so to speak. How about the real faith? You know, 10 hours, it may be a more of an outlier situation. I don't think... Um, I don't know where you'd have to live in the United States for it to be a 10-hour drive at this point, but is it worth it? Um, I don't know. What's, what's eternity worth to you? What's eternity worth to you? That's right. It's a good point. I mean, uh, coming out of the, the college football and the Big 12 college football scene, um, looking at what people would do and the money they would spend on tailgating during the football season and people driving in from all over the place and specifically buying like like $150,000, $200,000 RVs just for the purpose of tailgating. Okay, people are willing to do that, but no one's willing to to drive, drive a few minutes to get to Mass. Uh, I'm sorry. No, not buying it. And a general reminder, the Benefactor Masses for all the supporters of you through your website and everything. Those are Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays? Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. Ideally, we want one every day of the week. So if there are any priest listeners out there who would be willing to commemorate my benefactors on, let's see, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, and do it reliably so that you know the, the folks out there would know that that on this day, the, I'm being commemorated at the Holy Sacrifice at the, at the foot of the cross. That would be fantastic. And I also want to remind folks that I really want to do, um, have somebody say a requiem once a week for all of the people who died 
over the previous week so that so that we can get back to where people who are dying actually get a dignified requiem where someone is is begging God to have mercy on them as they go through their particular judgment and not these horrible, you know, the dearly departed is now an angel in heaven flapping around with wings nonsense. I mean, that that all has to stop. Ideally, we'd like to have a requiem said every day for people who died over the past 24 hours. Um, and that's everyone, people all over the world. We want to pray for every single human being that dies because every single human being that dies without exception faces Christ in, in their particular judgment when they die. And so everyone needs those prayers. And if they are, if the, if the person is not saved, sadly, then the, the merit of that goes to somebody else. And Our Lady is the mediatrix of that. She, that's one of her jobs. She gets to she gets to dish all of that grace out, and <laughs> and it, it's comforting to know that that the Mother of God is uh, so intimately involved in that. To make an analogy, if you're not if this whole economy of grace sounds really strange and, and something you can't put your your finger on, think about uh, let's let's say the electrical grid is a global construct that everybody can either tap into and get electricity out or put it in. People who dedicate their lives to prayer, whether they are in, in a religious life or a single person within walking distance of church, the, the, the prayers offered for everyone else is like pumping electricity into that grid. It's for whoever needs it. Obviously, if, you are, you know, if somebody is lost and they are unplugged, then they don't get that. It's going to be dispersed to somebody else. But uh, all, all these little things, uh, all, all the prayers that you can offer, these add up, these matter over time. And one of the reasons why the world has just gone downhill so quickly is because all of the monasteries emptied out and not only that, but the apostasy out of the church as a direct result of the failed Second Vatican Council and the promulgation of the Novus Ordo Mass, the, the prayers just aren't being lifted up. The monasteries are basically empty. There's only a handful of, of actual monasteries left in the world where, where monks and nuns are dedicating their lives to, to interceding for the world. Um, and uh, again, nobody, nobody at mass is asking for any of the, or asking for, certainly not asking for any of the right things. Um, one of the simple examples of this is that the Leonine prayers are no longer being, are no longer being offered after low mass. Um, Pope Leo XIII had a, had a terrifying vision of, um, actually it wasn't a vision, he just heard it. He heard a, a conversation between Satan and our Lord, who the, the voice of our Lord was coming out of the tabernacle because Pope Leo had just, had just offered the Mass, and he had a vision, or excuse me, he heard this conversation between Satan and our Lord, and he was so terrified by this that he immediately went back and composed a series of prayers that should be said after all low masses, three Hail Marys, a Hail Holy Queen, um, O God, our refuge and our strength, that prayer, the St. Michael the Archangel prayer, and then three Most Sacred Heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. The, nobody, nobody is asking for the defense of the church, for the conversion of sinners, none of these things. And it's funny, the joke, it's a, it's a macabre joke, but it's funny. When these were originally promulgated, it was said that these prayers were to be offered for the intentions of the Pope and the conversion of Russia. And now the joke is, is that we offer these for the intentions of Russia and the conversion of the Pope. But that's a, it's a rather macabre joke, and he's the anti-Pope. So, <laughs> but um, it's, it's, 
it's a bit of a witticism. And as with all witticisms, they tend to be funny if they're true. And that one, that one sort of is not that I'm pro Russia or anything, folks. But I mean, when, when the situation is that bad that you can even make the joke that we're praying for the intentions of Russia and the conversion of the Pope, you know, the situation's pretty bad. And another thing that came out of that, um, audio apparition, so to speak, is, was the original St. Michael prayer. There's, there's the, there's the short form that said it as part of the Leonine prayers, but there's also yes. the long form. I'll, I'll find a link to that and we'll put that in the show notes. It's a, a definitely a, a good prayer to say every once in a while, uh, especially when you understand the context of, of, of uh, what's going on here. And you're calling on the, the exorcist angel. Michael was the one who, who drove Satan and his followers out of heaven. And that's why St. Leo wrote this, or St. Leo, Pope Leo uh, he might probably be a saint. Anyway, Pope Leo XIII yeah, no, wrote, he's not, wrote this. He's not, but, no, I mean yeah. he hasn't been he hasn't been canonized, but it, he hasn't been canonized. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm not I'm not going to make myself pope and do that. Um, <laughs> but the, the point I was getting at is, is that that's the reason Pope Thir- Pope Leo uh, wrote the prayer to Saint Michael is because we have need of the exorcist angel again. Oh yes, oh yes. The the demonic oppression and infiltration is just getting worse with with each passing day. So. Implore Saint Michael to to defend you. I, I do every single day. In fact, usually multiple times per day. So I, I advise everyone else to do the same. And when you go to mass, if if the Leonine prayers are not said, um, you should just kneel down and say them yourself. You know, there there's no big deal. And if there's a group of you in the parish that that wants to say them together, but the priest doesn't want to, then after mass, after the priest has 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 left the altar and processed out. Then it is appropriate for a group of the lay uh, a group of the lay faithful in the nave to together out loud recite um, recite the Leonine prayers. That that would be absolutely wonderful. And if you're in a parish where people tend to chat and yammer after mass, that would be something that would also send the message to other people to um, shut up. And if you want to talk, go outside. If if there's a group of you who are offering the Leonine prayers, now that's what I call Catholic action. There you go. I think this. I think we're pretty much at a double episode here in terms of length. Wow. Well, we might. We'll see what we can do. We might split it in half, or we might release half of it today and then half of it on Wednesday or something like that. Um, I'll probably put it all out today, and and um, uh, if if circumstances require skipping next week, then uh, or or sometime in the future, then we, we can call it good. Um, okay. Any any final words? Uh, Just eternal thanks to um, everyone out there, all the support, both the donations coming in and, of course, the prayers and the kind words. Thank you very much. Um, We're just going to keep going for as long as we can. God bless all of you and have a wonderful week and try to stay cool. Okay. And send feedback if you have any uh, questions or whatnot to podcast at barnhart.biz. And until next week or next episode, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. God bless, guys. Take care. Take care.